Good morning. And again, happy Father's Day to all of our dads and granddads. This morning we're in Daniel chapter 7. You can turn there with me in your Bibles, Daniel chapter 7. We took a little break last week as we had Pastor Denny sharing with us, which was such a blessing for me personally, but I think for all of us. But now we get back into our series of studies in the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, you have this book that's really divided into two sections. You have chapters 1 through 6 that deal with historical events that took place during the life of Daniel. In chapters 7 through 12, the second half of the book deals with prophetic visions that Daniel received from the Lord. So with that as our introduction, I I just want to pray and, and ask the Lord to give us the ability to not just understand or comprehend what might happen in the future, but to understand the importance of this truth that God knows the future. That God, when he reveals the future, tells us these things in advance, so when they come to pass, we'll know that his word is true. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now in the name of Jesus that you'd give us tremendous understanding and insight, the power of your spirit, that you give us the ability to absorb what it is that you want to say to each of our hearts today. And Lord, give me the ability to go through this in a way that's not confusing, but that brings understanding, clarity, and application. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start by reading the vision, verses 1 through 14. Chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind. As he was lying on his bed, he wrote down the substance of his dream. And Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and it had wings had the wings of an eagle, and I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear, and it was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. And after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. And this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. And it was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. And while I was thinking about the horns there before me was another horn, or power, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And this horn, or power, had eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze, and a river of fire was flowing Coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court was seated and the books were opened. 
And then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence and he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, if you're familiar with Daniel chapter 2, there are similarities between the dream that Nebuchadnezzar received and the vision that Daniel receives. These happen at different times, about 60 years between them, but they really speak of the same thing from a different perspective. And what I want to do is, is focus primarily on the fourth beast. But before we do that, let's, let's get a little background. We'll go over this uh, vision and, and just kind of talk about it a little bit. And I want to get into the description of the fourth beast, but it's helpful to know what the first three beasts represent. History tells us how to interpret these visions. But better than that, the scripture in the next section actually interprets it for us. As one of these angels or beings that stand before the Ancient of Days, who is God himself, interprets for Daniel the answers to some of the questions he has. Not all of them, but some of them. But again, I refer you to our study in Daniel 2, which helps us to unpack and understand the vision in its entirety. First, it's important to know that he's sharing visions that he had received in a dream. And of course, dreams are strange, aren't they? Dreams are weird. But this dream is from God, and if you've ever noticed something about the visions that the prophets received in the Bible, they're, they're rather colorful. They're, they're not just a vision that you can make up. There's something much more than that. They're, they're vivid, with pictures and symbols that are hard, if not impossible, to interpret without the Holy Spirit. But the vivid nature of these visions helps us to see that we serve a creative God. We do. We serve a creative God. God's visions are not bland. They're vivid. They're, they're amazing. There's so much to them. And if you just take a step back and, and forget for a minute what it means and just take in what we've just read, it would be enough to realize God is a creative God. And these awesome visions came from him and were given to Daniel and have been shared with us. So take a, a breath for a minute and just realize, wow, that's really something. Imagine seeing an artist's rendering, which would fall short, or some type of a, a, a live-action rendering of this, it would be very hard, even with today's technology, to reproduce accurately what we've just read. It's even hard to imagine it, having read it. But now, moving on from that, let's remember he had this dream during the first year, the first year of Belshazzar's co-regency with his father, Nabonidus. This places it at about 549 B.C. And that's important because when we were studying chapter 5, we talked about Belshazzar. And, of course, that was 10 years later. So this actually is the second time that Daniel received visions through a dream. The first time he received the, the vision and the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream after having prayed with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for God to reveal it to them. That was in chapter 2. Again, I refer you to that chapter. But this happened, this chapter, chapter 7, this vision that he received, happened after the events recorded in chapter 4, the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar and his conversion, and before the events recorded in chapters 5 and 6. 
And so you can place it historically in between chapters 4 and 5. Now remember that Daniel was now between 70 and 80 years old. He had been living in obscurity for some time. We've talked about this. Whether he retired or resigned from government or had fallen out of favor as a man of God after Nebuchadnezzar's death, which was approximately 13 years earlier, before he received this vision, he wouldn't return to a position of influence in Babylon for another 10 years. And again, we read about that in Daniel chapter 5 and talked about it in Daniel chapter 6. So that would have been 539 B.C. So here we are, 10 years before that, 549 B.C. And he's receiving this vision, this wonderful, awesome, vivid vision that reveals to us some things about the future. Now, why would God tell us about the future? So that you could write a book? So that you can be really smart and impress your friends? Uh, So that you can know all things and be filled with pride? No, it's so that you can become a student of prophecy and history and recognize when prophecy becomes history, it proves the sovereignty of God. Amen? Remember the theme of the book of Daniel. It is the sovereignty of God. Fancy word means God is in control. So again, the, the, the image is amazing, but the point is even more amazing. The theme is even more amazing. That God knows all things from the beginning to the end and communicates them to us in advance so that when they happen, we can say, this book is not like any other book. What other book ever written communicates to us history before it happens. No other book. One of the things I remember when I was a very young person, I had watched a, I think it might have been an HBO special, The Man Who Saw Tomorrow. And it was all about the quatrains of a French person named Nostradamus. I think he was French. The quatrains of Nostradamus. And I bought the book because that's the kind of knucklehead I am. And I read through these. I was so amazed because, you know, I thought, oh, this is great. A, a book that predicts the future. Except when I started to read it, I had no idea what I was reading. Nothing made any sense. I had seen on this television show that Nostradamus had predicted Hitler. Except it wasn't Hitler. It was Hister. And if you're going to predict the future, you should be able to get it right. So there were a lot of coincidences and things that were really vague. And I thought to myself, if only there were a book that really, truly predicted the future. And it was at that time I started to realize, maybe the Bible predicts the future. So I read things like the book of Revelation, and not having had the Spirit, I really couldn't understand it. But it piqued my interest, and I read the book of Daniel, and I still didn't really understand it. And it probably wasn't until I started to to really study the Bible under the inspiration and power of the Spirit that I started to begin to understand a little of what was going on. But the important thing, it it became very clear, immediately clear to me, that God's word could predict the future, did predict the future, about Jesus. Things that took place 2,000 years ago were predicted hundreds and thousands of years before that. And it piqued my interest. I started to become very intrigued by the Bible. And I think that led me to a place where I recognized the truth of God's word so that when I heard the gospel from God's word, I responded to it and received Christ as my Lord and Savior. I think that's the most powerful aspect of prophecy. And we could say, I don't, we, we could say, we have no idea what this means. Close the book. And we've already received so much truth. Just the truth that God's word predicts the future. But we're not going to just leave that alone. We're going to look at what history tells us about these things as well. But understand 
that we don't need to interpret this because the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. We're going to read what the Bible has to say and what was interpreted for Daniel about this dream. So we pick it up now in verse 15, and I want to just look at, uh, actually, let's read verses 15 through 18, and then we'll break it down. This is Daniel's commentary on what happened next. He said, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. And so he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. Verse 17, the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. In verse 18, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Now, I don't think we have a hard time understanding uh, that part of the vision. The end part of the vision seems pretty clear to most of us, I think. It, it's sort of the beasts and what they represent. And, and, and I think that's where we'll spend a little time this morning. Uh, one of the things you need to understand is that uh, Daniel's writing in Aramaic. Uh, going back to a previous chapter in chapter 2, he's been writing in Aramaic, which is a different language than Hebrew. And the reason is because this really is for all nations. When he gets to chapter 8, he starts to write in Hebrew again. So this is open to everyone, Gentiles and Jews alike. This book is written in two languages for a reason. Okay, so we'll point that out first of all. But he describes the vision of the four beasts. He described the vision of the Ancient of Days, and I don't think any of us have a hard time interpreting who the Ancient of Days is, right? They even have a song now, don't they? Isn't that true, Pastor Russ? We have a song, Ancient of Days. We understand that that speaks God Almighty. And then the Son of Man shows up in this vision, and I don't think we have a hard time understanding who the Son of Man is. Amen? So he gives us these really sort of three sections of this vision. One is a little confusing, but the other two really aren't. Because they line up with the things that Jesus said would happen in the last days. So if we don't even get any deeper, we just take a step back. This is a vision about God the Father sending God the Son to rule and reign over the heavens and the earth, right? So again, if that's all you got out of that, that's a lot. And I don't think anyone would dispute that interpretation. After this, it starts to become a little dicey. We start to see different interpretations. But let's go with just what the angel or this being told Daniel and see if it makes sense. Okay? And I want to say, first of all, a lot of this, it isn't conjecture and it's not speculation. It is interpretation. So I'm going to first of all say that uh, God's word is true. I may not get every aspect of the interpretation perfectly right because I don't know all things and neither do you. But I think you'll see that what I'm going to share with you is pretty close to the mark, okay? So here is what we're going to learn. First of all, we see in verses 15 through 16 that Daniel was greatly affected by this vision. Having received this vivid dream, he was affected. He was troubled in his spirit. He was even disturbed by these visions. And I'm going to say that anytime you have a vision of God this vivid, your reaction will probably be one of being somewhat disturbed. You can't see something like this and not be affected. In fact, I've had dreams that I've wondered, are these spiritual dreams? And some, some I'm pretty sure were. And afterwards, I'm, I'm a little troubled. My, my spirit is disturbed and I find myself thinking about it throughout the day. That's normal. That's the way it should be. God had gifted this man who had trouble understanding the true meaning of these visions, but he had gifted this man with spiritual knowledge and understanding, back to chapter 1. He could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. 
And yet he really had no clue as to what was going on here. So even Daniel, who had such great spiritual wisdom and understanding, probably didn't have a clue as to what he had just seen. If not for the interpretation, I don't think any of us would. See, he had to ask one of those standing before the Ancient of Days to reveal the interpretation, and he did. He was told that the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. Now, that language suggests that this is something that was ongoing. It already started. Going back to Daniel chapter 2, that was true about the vision of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar received. The head was Nebuchadnezzar, and of course the Babylonian empire or kingdom had already existed. But it starts with the four winds of heaven. Now, when we think of the four winds of heaven in classic literature, we're talking about north, south, east, west, right? It's a way of describing the sovereignty of God as it is enforced on the earth. That God is in control of everything is kind of summed up in that compass of north, south, east, and west. Wherever you go, north, south, east, or west, God is in control, and he controls the winds, he controls uh, the waves, he controls all that happens in our world, which is to say, poetically, he controls the world. Again, God is sovereign. We keep coming back to that theme because that's really the point. Now, these are four spirits, not just winds, spirits. It's an interesting word because it can be used to describe both spirits and winds. Uh, it's an interesting word in the original language. But it directs God's will over the whole earth. It comes up in Zechariah, comes up in Revelation. Uh, when we read in Jeremiah 49, we see that the four winds of heaven brought judgment against Elam, which was a forerunner of Persia, in 596 B.C. And we see the four winds of heaven bringing about the division of Greece in 301 B.C., as predicted by Daniel in chapter 8, which we'll get to next week. They also bring about the scattering and the regathering of Israel, as predicted by Zechariah in Zechariah 2. So this is a recurring theme. This language is used over and over again. And it also will bring about a future regathering of Israel, as predicted by Jesus. They're gathered from the four winds of heaven. It's a way of describing throughout the earth. And these four winds or spirits will bring spiritual life to Israel during the last days, as predicted by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37. The four winds of heaven are involved with, with the last day's events. It's a poetic way of saying God is in control. Are you with me? Say amen. Okay, I want you to understand that. Now, there's another symbol that's used here, and it's that of the churning of the great sea. Now, if you were living on Long Island, the great sea would probably be the Atlantic Ocean, right? But if you're living in the area of the Middle East, the Great Sea is the Mediterranean Sea. And that much is clear. So if we're talking about the Great Sea, it can only refer to that, the Mediterranean Sea. But in the Bible, these symbols come up over and over again. And I'm summarizing for you, and granted, it is a large topic, but I'm trying to bring it to a small uh, kernel of what you could look at for the next 10 years of your life. Uh, waters symbolize the many peoples around the world. It comes up in Revelation 17. They symbolize the peoples, the waters of the world. So these waters are being churned or troubled, and God is the one churning them or troubling them. This is God's will. And so the picture that we see as we open up in verses 1 and 2, uh, going back to the chapter we read, uh, part of the chapter we read earlier, this picture symbolizes the troubled nations surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. So this isn't something that takes place in Africa or South America or Asia or Australia. This is something that will take place in and around the Mediterranean Sea. So 
the area, the peoples living around the Mediterranean Sea. And of course, as we unpack this, it becomes obviously true. All right, let's look at the beasts themselves. He saw four different beasts come up out of the great sea. And these are the same four kingdoms, we're told that they're kingdoms, from Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which he had 60 years earlier. 60 years ago, in this time, Daniel had interpreted a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. He received not only the dream as well, but the interpretation, presented it to Nebuchadnezzar, and it was the beginning of Daniel's rise to power, which ultimately ended up having him be a prime minister in the Babylonian kingdom, but then later in the Persian kingdom as well. Right now, it's still during the time of the Babylonians when he receives this vision. Well, the four kingdoms are Babylon, Medo-Persia, which was a, a, an alliance between the Medes, who we call the Kurds today, and Persians, who we refer to as Iranians today. These people groups still exist. Babylonians would be Iraqis or Chaldeans, if you will. Uh, these people groups still exist, and we're familiar with who they are. We just refer to them differently. Uh, the, the third would be Greece, and finally Rome. And these were the empires that successively emerged around the Mediterranean Sea among the troubled peoples of the Mediterranean Sea in successive order following the pattern laid out in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and then expounded upon in Daniel's dream. So that's the first thing you need to know. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar saw these kingdoms, he saw them as part of a glorious image. Daniel saw them as beasts. Sort of God's perspective versus man's perspective. And these are four kingdoms that would exist throughout what we refer to as the times of the Gentiles. In fact, that comes up in Luke and, and in Revelation. The times of the Gentiles begin when Jerusalem as a city falls and the Jews are taken into captivity. We're still living in the times of the Gentiles. That will culminate to a moment where Christ comes again. So right now we refer to the time in which we're living as the times of the Gentiles, even though the Jews are back in Israel, even though those things are true. The temple has not been rebuilt, and we see we're living in a time where Gentile world history is prominent and preeminent, okay? So the times of the Gentiles will continue until Christ sets up his millennial kingdom. And so this vision deals with these kingdoms that emerge during this time period. The first beast, let's look briefly at the first beast. This was like a lion, but it had the wings of an eagle. And this can only refer to Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, which existed between 605 and 539 BC. And this is God allowing the Babylonian Empire to emerge to judge Israel for their sins. He actually allowed that empire to arise, and they destroyed Jerusalem. Why did they destroy Jerusalem? Was God not faithful? No, God was faithful. They were unfaithful, and Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem was the result of Israel's sins. They would be taken into captivity for 70 years, and indeed they were, and that's how Daniel ends up in Babylon. Well, the lion represents the majesty and ferocity of the Babylonian empire, and its eagle's wings represent the swiftness, the ability of this empire to conquer so many areas of the world at that time so quickly. Babylon rose quickly, but it quickly became weak and corrupt shortly after Nebuchadnezzar's death. We've talked about this as we've been studying in the book of Daniel. 
So when it speaks of the beast having a, or being a man with a man's heart, that kind of accurately describes the current state of Babylon at the time that Daniel receives the vision. They went from being a mighty, ferocious empire to being somewhat weak. And within 10 years, they're going to be destroyed by another empire. And that empire is represented by the second beast. The second beast looked like a bear. Now I want to remind you that everything that happens from here on in hasn't happened when Daniel wrote the vision. So at that point, the first beast was kind of happening within the present time that Daniel received this vision. But we get to the second beast, and this hasn't happened yet. It would happen within 10 years, but it hasn't happened yet. Is it harder? Let me ask you a question. Is it harder to predict something that takes place a thousand years from now or three weeks from now? It's actually not harder. It, it, it's impossible to do either. Think about it. I mean, can you predict what the stock market is going to be when the, it opens on Monday morning? No, you can't. You could probably say it's going to be down, and you'd probably be right, but that's a different story. I just want you to understand, you can't predict the future a thousand years from now, a hundred years from now, ten years from now, without God's wisdom and understanding. That's the point. Well, the second beast looked like a bear, and it raised up on one of its sides. And this can only refer to the Medo-Persian Empire, which was in existence between 539 B.C. and 300, roughly 300 B.C. So that's a long time. God would use Medo-Persia to judge Babylon for their sins. In fact, we see the bear in this vision raised up on one side. Why would that be? Because that represents the Persian dominance over the Medes. It was the Medo-Persian Empire when they emerged, and then over time, the Persians emerged more dominant. And so the bear is raised up on one side to represent the Medo-Persian Empire. Everyone with me? We also have three ribs in the mouth of the bear. And there were three major cities that were conquered by the Medo-Persians as they conquered the Babylonian Empire. There was Babylon, Ecbatana, and Borsippa. And so, very interesting. I don't think just interesting. I think divine knowledge and wisdom that the bear would be raised up on one side, Persian dominance, and have three ribs in its mouth representing each of the major cities that they conquered in order to take over the Babylonian Empire. Now, the command to get up and eat its fill of flesh accurately describes their conquests. The cruelty of Cyrus's Medo-Persia and their conquests were legendary. If you're familiar with the, the 300 Spartans, if you're familiar with Leonidas and the history of Greece over time, we'll talk more about that in the future. The Persians were known for their cruelty. All right? Well, now we get to the third beast, and we're going through this quickly because... This just sets the stage for what we'll be spending our, most of our time with. Uh, the third beast looked like a leopard with four wings like those of a bird. Now, if the Babylonian Empire was represented by a lion with two wings, what does that say about the leopard represented by four? I think this can only refer to the Greek Empire, which started with Alexander the Great in around 300 B.C. and went right up until Julius Caesar, roughly the time of 50 B.C., and we know this, history has borne this out, that these things are true. If God said these things were going to happen, and then we look at what actually happened, and it lines up accurately and can be interpreted retrospectively, that is, looking back, who are we to doubt the word of God or to try to interpret it for our own gain? It's pretty clear the immediate interpretation of the scripture lines up with what actually happened, and we shouldn't dispute that. But it is amazing, amen? 
Well, the leopard in its four bird-like wings represents the incredible, unrelenting swiftness of the Greek conquests. Alexander the Great quickly conquered the whole Mediterranean world, making it all the way over to Afghanistan. An amazing, an amazing man in terms of his ability to conquer the world. Though Greece was divided into four parts, or heads, after Alexander's death ended his great authority. And of course, the leopard is described in that way. When we go back to verse 6, it says there that he, there is another beast, one that looked like a leopard on its back. It had four wings and those of a bird. But it also says that the beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. And after Alexander the, the, uh, the Great died, his four generals took over the Greek kingdom, divided up into four kingdoms. Coincidence? I think not. But God has revealed to us what would happen before it happened. Having happened, we can interpret it accurately. Well, Alexander the Great died prematurely at about the age of 30. After having conquered the world, he was quoted as having said there was nothing left to conquer. He was very sad and depressed because there was simply nothing left to do. Anyway, he died in the city of Babylon after a life of debauchery. I don't recommend you watch too many films about the life of Alexander the Great. You will probably be grieved in your spirit. Well, he saw a fourth beast, and this is really what Daniel was interested in. We've gone through the history. It leads up to a fourth beast that was, in verse 7, terrifying, frightening, and very powerful. And this can only refer to the Roman Empire. You can't study history without being aware of the Roman Empire. It started around 50 BC with Julius Caesar, and it's hard to say exactly when it ended, but some people believe it's accurate to say around 500 AD or 476. And it became gradually weaker until ultimately it kind of disappeared. It became the Holy Roman Empire, and then it kind of divided into other kingdoms. And it's interesting because that's the direction that the kingdom went in, being divided, and we'll see that lines up with much of what is revealed in Scripture. This terrifying beast and its large iron teeth represented the Roman practice of absorption. They would come in and absorb kingdoms and nations and make them one. The Pax Romana was the Roman peace. They prided themselves on conquering the world and bringing law and order to the barbarians and to those that were out of control. Law and order is what they brought under the Roman sword. They brought this law and order to the Mediterranean world. And this is just history. Well, Rome devoured the Mediterranean world with its sheer power and force. But Rome was different from all the other former empires. And it's described as having ten horns, or kings, if you will. Jesus took this a step further in Revelation chapter 13 when he revealed to John his revelation. And I'm going to stay away from getting too, too much into that because if I start going into Revelation now, when we get there in a few weeks, uh, I'll have already repeated myself. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to give you a brief summary. You can check it out for yourself. But Revelation is the companion book to Daniel. And so it reveals a lot of the things that Daniel talked about in his visions as well. But here's the summary. In Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Jesus, when revealing to John what things would take place in the future, says that this beast came out of the same sea described by Daniel. So we're talking about the same beast. It had the same ten horns or kings described by Daniel. It had seven heads 
And some believe that points to the nature of the Roman governments. There were seven forms of Roman government. Five had existed by the time John received the revelation. One existed. It was imperial Rome. Later on, the seventh will be a mix of imperialism and social democracy. We'll talk more about that as we break down the future uh, revelations that, uh, that we received in the book of Revelation by John. But you can check that out for yourself. There are ten crowns mentioned. This represents kingdoms that will be given to Rome by the devil's authority. And it also, interestingly enough, and I encourage you to check it out, uh, when this beast is being described in the Revelation in chapter 13, it's described referencing a leopard, a bear, and a lion. And I thought that was really interesting because uh, as we read, it says, and again, I don't want to get too much into this, but it said that the beast... I saw, this is in Revelation 13, resembled a leopard, but had the feet of those of a bear and the mouth like that of a lion. But this beast is called a dragon. All right? So understand that we're talking about the same thing. These visions are not independent of one another. That's the only point I want to get to today. It's a lot of information. Okay. Rome disintegrated during the Middle Ages, but it will resurface during the last days. We've already seen the beginnings of this with the European Union, which was first the common market, and then became uh, a little bit more uh, of a united Europe. And then over time, they adopted a singular currency. And now when we think of Europe, we think of one superpower called uh, the European Union. That's the beginnings of the fulfillment of what will take place in the future. We're not there yet, but we can see the stage being set, just like we can see Israel back in the land of Israel, which until 1948, May 14th, 1948, you couldn't say it would have happened. I can tell you this, if you're worried about this happening tomorrow and reading about it in the news, one of the things you need to remember is the temple must be rebuilt for many of these things to take place. So people will say, is the end of the world tomorrow, Pastor Tim? I said, no, but if they build the temple tomorrow, then it's the next day. <laughs> so that's about the way I look at it. So here we are. Again, I don't know all things. I'm sharing with you the visions, the cross-references, really more than anything else, to get you interested. Because, listen, we have a saying at the dojo, and uh, Russ and Lisa will know this, Dan might know as well. Uh, they always say, we throw so much at you, like a bowl of spaghetti, and some of it's going to stick, and some of it's going to fall off. So if anything sticks to you today, it's a good day. All right? So I know that all of this information, you can always go back and listen online. It's a lot of information. I'm not asking you or even expecting you to remember every little thing that I share with you today. I want you to walk away from this study knowing that God is sovereign. Amen? Well, let's continue. You still got a little brain cell in you, right? Yeah, we're going to be okay here? All right, so here's what happened. The fall of Rome uh, is talked about in poetic imagery in Revelation 13. Uh, it's represented by this beast having a fatally wounded head. But it gets healed. And so we expected all along throughout the centuries the return of Rome. But when Rome returns in the form that Daniel talks about, it's there described like, Babel, uh, like uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon's dream, ten toes, ten heads. It's, it, that number ten comes up because there will be ten kingdoms in the last days that comprise the ultimate Roman Empire. We're not there yet. And I don't know exactly how that's going to be fulfilled because there are more nations than 10 in the European Union. So what that means or represents, we can only guess at. But know this, the day will come 
where we'll look at a Mediterranean world power in Europe, and it will have 10 parts. There'll be 10 leaders, whatever that means. When that day comes, we're getting close. I can say it that way. Okay, so Jesus came, of course, uh, 2,000 years ago. And when he came to the earth, he found Rome in control of Israel. That was in the past. When Jesus comes again, he's going to find Rome in control of Israel. Interesting. It's almost like a parenthesis. You know, we're in a parenthesis. It's like these things were happening, and now, you know, Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Amen? And in the meantime, we're, during, we're living during a time of God's grace where he's reaching out to his church and reaching out to peoples that they might come to know him. But everything else is almost like the pause button on your CD player. Remember what CDs were? I, I, I think it's funny because I'm old enough to remember what eight tracks were. Some people are like, what? Cassette tapes? LPs? No, they've come back now. We, we, we're back into vinyl. Why, I don't know, but we are. But yeah, you hit that pause button, right? And it just kind of hangs out there. Think about it on your DVR. That'll help. So you just hit the pause button, and what's happening? Nothing's happening, but yeah, but stuff is happening. But just, we're going to pick it up again when God hits that play button. And then Rome will be the central focus of the European world. When I say Rome, I mean the, the Roman Empire, again, divided into these ten parts. So that gives us an idea of what to look for and what to expect. How it happens, your guess is as good as mine. I can see the beginnings of it. Anything beyond that would be speculative, and I'm not interested in speculating this morning. So, Daniel was told, and we read this in verse 18, that the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever and ever. That's the easy part of this vision, of this dream. We know that's happening. Scripture's told us over and over again that the Lord is coming again to judge the living and the dead, that he's coming with his saints, and we're going to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. Amen? Not hard to interpret. And so we'll move on. But Daniel is struck by this. He receives some degree of interpretation. But notice in verses 19 through 22, his reaction. Then I wanted to know. And you might be feeling the same way this morning. I've shared a lot of information. And maybe some of you are saying, well, that's enough, Pastor Tim. I've had enough. But some of you might be saying, yeah, but I want to know. And some people get so intrigued by what they can't know that they get distracted. And I would not encourage you to be that way. But if you want to know more about God's plan for the world, and more importantly, your own life, please ask those questions. As I'm fond of saying, you don't want to question God. You don't want to question his love. You don't want to question his sovereignty. But you do want to ask him questions. Because we know this about those that ask questions. They get answers. So here's what happened. Daniel says, Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others. And most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws and the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Obviously, that's referring to a person. As I watched this horn or power, that word can be interpreted power, As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And 
the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Amen. We're looking forward to that day. That's good news. So that should encourage you. There will come a time where Jesus is in control of all things and we'll be ruling and reigning with him. No disputing that. Every eschatological viewpoint that I am aware of that makes any sense whatsoever and is even remotely biblically based accepts the truth that Christ is coming again to rule and reign and we will reign with him. Amen? Okay. Now let's talk about uh, the fourth beast. A little bit of information because the book of Revelation gives us much more just to kind of whet your appetite. Daniel was told a lot. And one of the things he wanted to know, he, he saw that this, 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 he saw that this kingdom represented by the beast was different from the other beast. It had iron teeth and bronze claws. It kind of speaks of its ability to just conquer its brutality. It crushed and devoured its victims. It trampled underfoot whatever was left. Very accurate description of Rome. But it also had those ten horns on its head and a little horn or power that uprooted three. This is important because as we get into the book of Revelation, there's a point at which this kingdom, this satanic kingdom, has only seven of the ten horns and then three are conquered. And that, that kind of gives us an understanding of what might happen for this European superpower to emerge. Well, he saw that the horn, this little power, was more imposing than the others and had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And this horn, or power, waged war against the saints and defeated them. The book of Revelation has a lot to say about this Roman horn. We refer to him as the Gentile beast, the first beast, sometimes called the Antichrist. There are actually two, but he's the first beast, and we'll talk more about him in Revelation chapter 13. But he saw the saints of the Most High come and possess the kingdom, and that is perhaps the most encouraging part of what he saw. So Daniel was told that this fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth and ultimately be judged by the Most High God. And he begins to describe, or the angel begins to describe to Daniel, and he describes to us, the fourth kingdom. Different from all other kingdoms. Devouring the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. We don't know what, to what extent the world will be controlled by this power. I don't believe it's a global power, but I do believe for sure it is Eurocentric because that much we learn in Scripture. The ten horns are ten kings. There's no disputing that. So that means the ten toes from Nebuchadnezzar's dream are ten kings as well. And they will come from this kingdom. And he revealed this little horn is another different king, and you're going to be able to recognize him if you're looking from heaven, I believe, and watching these things take place, or if you happen to have a different eschatological viewpoint, you might be watching it from the earth. But... I don't want to get into what I believe. I want to get into what the scripture says. You're going to recognize this king because he's going to subdue three of the ten. He's going to be able to take control of this power by taking control of three of them. Not, he doesn't have to control all ten, just three. And then the other powers give their power to him. That much we know. He will rule over all ten of the Roman kings. And Jesus further described this king and his kingdom in Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, also Revelation 13, verse 1. Again, I'm resisting the urge to go there today. All right, the kingdom will initially have ten horns, but only seven crowns. And then, of course, this will be a Gentile king empowered by the devil himself. Again, we've sometimes referred to him as the beast, the first beast or the Antichrist. And he revealed that this king will speak against the Most High, oppress his saints... I want to point out, he's going to try to 
change the set times and laws. Let's read a little bit of where we left off, picking it up in verse 23. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. And after them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. That's where we say amen. Amen. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. We'll stop there for now in verse 27. So I've gotten into this a little already, uh, but that kind of gives us an understanding of how to interpret these visions, and this vision in particular of this fourth beast. He's going to, this power, this king, he's going to speak against the saints. And one of the things I said already, he's going to try to change the set times and laws. This has to do with the Jewish temple worship and the sacrifices of the Jews. This is a reference to Jewish law, the set times and the laws. Now, how can you change the laws of temple sacrifice and worship if there's no temple? Well, you can't. So you see why I say you can't desecrate or defile a temple that hasn't been rebuilt. So what is it we're looking for? The next major thing to happen? We're looking for the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. When that happens, you're going to see a decidedly excited pastor teach prophecy. I'm I'm excited now. Don't get me wrong. But like when that happens, I'm going to hit my stopwatch. Because things will rapidly escalate from there. He will try to completely destroy Judaism during this time. Not hard to imagine a world power trying to destroy Jews. Throughout the centuries, this is a common theme of Satan. No one should be surprised that in the last days, that's what's going to happen. Well, the saints of the Most High will be handed over to this devilish power for three and a half years. Did you see that? A time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. That's a a common uh, amount of time in in biblical prophecy. We refer to Daniel's 70th week as seven years, sometimes called seven years of tribulation or great tribulation. And it's divided into two halves. This comes up over and over again. We'll see it as we go through this book, as we get into Revelation as well. So what are we being told here? That the tribulation saints, those saints who were on the earth at that time, will go through the second half of Daniel's 70th week, and they're going to suffer. I don't believe that these are church saints. I believe the church will be raptured before then. Now, some people believe that the church will be raptured before those seven years begin. That's me. I'm in that category. Doesn't mean I'm right. That's just the way I think. We'll see if I'm right. I always say it this way. If I'm right and someone here is wrong, I'll explain it to you on the way up. <laughs> if I'm wrong, okay, then we, I believe we'll get through at least another three and a half years before the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. And I don't believe we will experience the wrath of God. 
So what, Pastor Tim, what if we were still here after that? Well, then God will preserve us because we are not under his wrath. What did, what did Lot, what was the story of Lot that Abraham learned? Will God judge the wicked with the righteous or the righteous with the wicked? No. Lot had to be taken out of Sodom before judgment could come. So maybe some of you guys who believe will be raptured at the end of the seven years, that means we'll be preserved through the three and a half. If you believe we'll be raptured in the middle of that seven-year time period, then you won't go through the three and a half years of great tribulation, referred to here. And if you're like me and you favor the belief that we'll be out of here before then, not because I'm an escapist, but because I believe the scripture points in that direction more favorably than the other theories, then, again, we'll explain it to our friends on the way up. So, that's that. So the saints will be handed over for three and a half years. Whoever believes in God during those last three and a half years before Christ returns is going to suffer. That's why it's called the time of tribulation. They're going to go through a difficult time. Will they experience God's wrath? No, not if they're saints. But they'll experience the wrath of the world and the devil. Okay? So probably good to secure your eternal destiny now. By giving your heart to Jesus Christ, then no matter what happens, God is sovereign in your life. Amen? He's sovereign in all of our lives. But you don't have to worry about that. One less thing to worry about. Gas prices are high. Inflation's on the rise. The world's going crazy, but you won't have to worry about what happens when you die. Amen? Okay. So finally, (coughs) this angel reveals that this king will be judged, stripped of his power, and completely destroyed forever. And this lines up with revelation as well. The court in heaven will be seated. Books will be opened. The king and his kingdom will be destroyed for the boastful words that this king will speak. Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece were not judged as severely as this resurrected Rome will be. And this will happen during Christ's millennial judgment on the earth, and we will be here for that. We will return with him. He saw thrones set in place. The Ancient of Days take his seat. And of course, the Ancient of Days is God the Father. His clothing as white as snow. His hair white like wool. When we get to Revelation chapter 1, the exact same description. His throne is flaming with fire. Its wheels were ablaze. Ezekiel chapter 1, the same exact description of God's throne. A river of fire flowing out from before him. Thousands attending to him, tens of thousands standing before him. We have no question as to who the Ancient of Days is. But remember this. It's also been revealed that the saints of the Most High, that's us. Whether it's a saint in the Tribulation, a saint in the Old Testament, or a saint in the New Testament, or a saint today. The saints of the Most High will receive the kingdoms, all the kingdoms, under the whole heaven. Remember, the meek shall inherit the earth. And that we have to look forward to as well. The sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms of the world, even the White House, will belong to us forever and ever. That's an amen. Amen? Well, Christ's earthly kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And it will be a kingdom over all the rulers of the earth. And I have to tell you, as much as I enjoy voting, and I enjoy supporting conservative candidates that share my values... I'm really looking forward to this regime change. I'm really looking forward to the results of this. I don't even want to say election. I, I just, I'm looking forward to the day when Christ rules and reigns on the earth, and you and I, we have a place to decide. 
Well, in this vision, in verse 27, to recap a little bit before we close, Christ's earthly kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Notice he saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, in verse 13. I think you know who that is, right? Christ will return in the clouds to reign on earth with all of his saints, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 11. He also saw the Son of Man approach the Ancient of Days and be led into his presence. And when we get to Revelation chapter 5, that's exactly what we see. See, Christ has entered the presence of God the Father, having conquered sin and death. He saw him given authority glory and sovereign power by the ancient of days. Christ, given all of that as the Son of God. And of course, Christ will receive power and authority from God the Father. He saw many peoples, nations and language groups worship God. And of course, Christ will receive worship from all mankind. Christ will reign because he saw that his dominion is eternal and his kingdom endures forever. Christ will reign forever and ever for a thousand years. And then after that, He's going to usher in eternity. Verse 28. And I'll ask Pastor Russ to come up to close the service. In verse 28, we read this, chapter 7. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled. By my thoughts and my face turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. He didn't immediately share this. Remember, Daniel chapter 7 comes after chapter 6, even though it kind of happened between 4 and 5. This isn't something he was so ready to share. He he didn't maybe completely understand it. It was very troubling. But it's still true. He was physically distressed by these visions and their interpretations, and he chose to keep the true meaning of them to himself for now. When we get to the end of this book, Daniel is told to seal it up because the visions are not for now. When we get to the book of Revelation, John is told that it's not to be sealed. We are living in an age where we can truthfully, honestly study these things with understanding and receive God's wisdom because we are living in the last days. So, I know I went through a lot of information today, a little spaghetti. Threw a lot of spaghetti at you. It's an Italian thing, I guess. If any of it stuck, praise God. If you need to go back and read over these scriptures, I encourage you to do so. We're going to revisit these themes. And again, when we get into Revelation, some of this will be familiar to you. But I want you to come away from this morning knowing that you can be sure that you can trust God's word. And when God's word tells you that Jesus loves you and died for you on the cross and rose again on the third day and is coming again to judge the living and the dead, the most important thing you need to know is that if he could predict world powers emerging on the scene with such specificity, if he could predict the future before it happens, and he holds the whole world in his hand, then you can trust Jesus with your heart and your life and your family and your finances and the future. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We are encouraged to know that you are sovereign in control of all things. Lord, help us to, as best we can, understand these things to have an understanding that leads us closer to you. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.